Listen now that by faith you might hear God's word for you this morning. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 12, and these words will be on the screen. Since then we have such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened indeed to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant That same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that uh, when your word is read, when it's opened up uh, by people, you are at work. You are moving, you are changing, you are challenging, you are shifting around assumptions and expectations. And you've done this uh, for me in my encounters with the text this week, and now I pray that you would do that through me, for all of us, really through the power of your Holy Spirit, reaching into the deepest parts of who we are and moving us toward becoming these people that you long for us to be, people increasingly that look like, act like, sound like, the Lord Jesus. And we could never get there on our own. Our our imaginations would just fall as we try to think of how you would do that. So fill our imaginations now, Holy Spirit, with these desires and these longings to be more like Jesus. May this text lead us in that direction, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world that you love so much that you died to save it. Bless this time we have together. In In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I got a new car. Isn't it fun to get a new car, right? Like, if it's new to you or if it's new, there's the new car smell, maybe, although you can buy car air fresheners now that are the new car smell, which I always thought was kind of redundant. Like, are you telling yourself through your senses that it's a new car, even when it's not? Like, I, I don't know that I buy that. A new car is fun because there's all these idiosyncrasies, right? Like you get a new car and you have to figure out which side of the car the gas tank is on. You have to figure out where cruise control is. I like it because it's fun to kind of figure out where you can store stuff, right? Like there's these little pockets or there are these little areas where you can tuck away a pencil if you need it. Or if you're like me and you have kids, an absolutely essential item to carry in your car is napkins, And I would encourage that for everybody, but especially if you have little kids, napkins are just, man, they come along in so many different ways. So years ago, I get a new car. At the time, I'm still living in Texas, and so I have two brothers and a sister, and my brothers, they're younger than me. At the time, they were really into cars, and like you would expect males to typically be into cars, right? They wanted fast cars. They wanted cool cars. I have a Honda Accord. I love my car, but my brothers were like, oh, well, lovely for you. But they told me, okay, you got to do some stuff to your car. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Like, I got this new car. Like, I'm not, like, whatever. I'm fine, right? And they convinced me, actually, 
to do something that I've never done to a car before, which was get the windows tinted. Has anyone ever gotten the windows on their car tinted? You don't really have to do that in the Northwest. You do that when you live in Texas, or like when we lived in Colorado, our cars really needed to have a little bit of extra covering on the windows because it gets hot, right? We don't actually get hot here. 80 is not hot. 85 is not hot. That's moderate. That's temperate. That's a warm blanket. But my brothers convinced me, dude, you got to get it tinted. Come on, like do the limo thing. I'm like, okay, whatever. So in most states, I don't know Washington state, but in most states, you cannot get your windshield tinted. Thank God. You can only get the passenger windows, like the windows in the back of the car, and then your back windshield tinted, right? So I'm talking about getting those windows tinted. This will matter in just a moment. So I go to this absolute dump, a dive of a place to get my windows tinted, because my brothers recommended it, and because they were cash only, problem number one. I pull up to it, and it looks like someone's garden shed has been converted into an auto body shop, problem number two. Problem number three, it was cash only for a reason. It was really, really cheap. Cheap tint is not a good idea. So I go get my car tinted, and I'm like, okay, this is nice. And then I move here, and the first winter in the Northwest comes. Now, when it's dark at 8.30 in the morning, when I'm driving to work, and it's dark at 2 before I even get off of work, what do you think happens when I'm sitting in my heavily tinted car trying to drive? It's pouring rain, and I cannot see anything through the side windows. I can't see anything out the back. Thank God I can see in front of me. Otherwise, we might be having this conversation from the other side of a jail cell, like I might have run somebody over. But I cannot see a doggone thing. And the windshield's fine. Everything else is fine. But it's like trying to drive at night while wearing sunglasses. That's the best way I can explain it, right? So I would stop. I'm not kidding you. I would stop at stoplights or stop signs. And whatever direction I was trying to turn, left or right, I would roll down that window so I could actually see. I would do this in the rain. So it would rain into my car because of the stupid window tent that my brothers talked me into getting. I love my brothers, but goodness sakes, that was the worst idea ever. Now, I'm going to explain what the window tent means in just a minute. We're in the middle of a sermon series right now where we're talking about our three pursuits, our three things that we want to get after as a church. Bethany is 103 years old, which is remarkable. We have six different locations around the Seattle area, all in one family. And as we live into 103 years of life together, these are the three things we think the church should be about. We should be about Christ and preaching Christ and Christ resurrected through the lens of our gathering where we worship together, when we grow And that's what we're talking about today and when we go. Those three things, gather, grow, and go. Isn't it lovely how they all start with the letter G? Last week was gather, where we learned, if you weren't here, that worship is about treasuring what God has given to us. That we honor God by treasuring God's mercy and God's grace and his justice and his love for us. This week we're talking about growing. And the definition I'm going to use for grow actually comes from Dallas Willard, someone you've heard me talk about a lot. I'll say more about him in a minute. To grow means this. It means your inner being is shaped to become more like Christ's inner being. Your inner being, deep down, who you are at your core, is shaped to become more like Christ's inner being. That's what we're talking about today. And the car tent story I told, because there are things that hold us back from growing that Paul refers to in the text as a veil. 
a veil. Now, mo- no one came in here wearing a veil today. Most of us probably have not encountered this fashion item, but it was an important part of the history of Israel that we're going to talk about in just a minute. The car tent is an analogy for not being able to see clearly. And if we can't see clearly, we can't pick a destination, we can't grow, we can't pursue the things that God wants for us. So we're going to talk about how this image of the veil will impact our lives. There's an outline in your bulletin, if you'd like to open that up. We're going to talk about history, we're going to talk about the problem, we're going to talk about a solution, and then we're going to talk about next steps. If you're a note taker, as I would uh, remember many of you are, uh, leave a little bit, a little bit of extra step, blah, space around next steps. So let's talk about history. One of our key principles, scripture interprets scripture. How do we understand what's happening in a scripture passage? We look back at a scripture passage that helps explain it. So the history of the people of Israel will explain what this veil terminology means. I'm going to be referencing Exodus 34. I'm not going to be reading from it, but if you want to go read from it on your own time this week, that's where the story of Moses and the veil comes from. So we're going back in time before Paul, before the birth of the church, before Jesus' death and resurrection. The people of Israel are wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And in Exodus 34, they've kind of hit a wall. Things are starting to go sideways. They're worshiping pagan gods. The golden calf hasn't happened quite yet, but it's coming. There's cracks in their foundation. So what does God do? Charlton Heston goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai, right? And he gets the Ten Commandments. Why does he get the Ten Commandments? He gives the Ten Commandments because the law is really, really, really important. And in most religious circles, we associate the law with being inherently negative. Let me disaffect us of that notion for just a minute. The people of God are no different from other people in that we are lost without a map. We are lost without guidance from our God who sees perfectly, sees clearly, sends us in the direction, not just of what we should do, but who we should become. So he gives the gift of the Ten Commandments to the people of God to show them, this is who I am and this is who I expect you to become. So Moses stays on Mount Sinai with God. The text tells us he's actually there for 40 days. The Ten Commandments are given to him on two stone tablets and he gets a bonus. It's like, wait, there's more on QFC channel. He gets QVC. QFC is a grocery store, QVC. Jeez, I need to get back on QVC, guys. He gets a bonus. He is changed by these 40 days with God. His face is shining. He is radiating the glory of God from his face as a side effect of being in God's presence for 40 days. I always refer to different Bible figures by kind of some like nicknames that I give them in my notes. So my nickname for Moses is Big Mo or Mo. So this is the Moglo. The Moglo is what we're talking about this morning. Moses is glowing. And if you want to kind of picture this in your head, picture the next time you're at the grocery store this winter and you see someone who is obviously tan. They have not been around Western Washington the same amount of time that you have. They've clearly gotten away. There's something different about them. They have the glow. Moses has the glow. His didn't come from Maui. It came from God. So he comes down off the mountain, and this is so funny. The text tells us he didn't actually know he was glowing until someone around him said, by the way, did you know there's a thing with your face? I can read my book right now from the light of your face. He has to be told this, and so he decides to wear a veil. And the original goal of this veil, and when I say veil, like picture like a scarf, right, that you can kind of raise up around your face, maybe a burqa like we see in a lot of countries around the world, something like that. We don't really know. 
But the original use of Moses' veil was for humility and modesty. He wore the veil as not to be a distraction with the Moglo for the Israelites. Now, go back to the passage that I read for us a moment ago from 2 Corinthians. Paul tells us, yeah, he's wearing the veil, the Moglo is an issue. But he says something else, and you may have caught this right when we started to read it in verse 12. The veil was to disguise something that was happening. And this is a whole other sermon. We don't have time to get into it. But what was happening was the glory of God, the Moglo, over time was starting to diminish. It was starting to go away. And here's one of the things I love about Moses. Moses is a person just like you and me. And if any one of us had something like that that made us so special and so unique and it started to fade, most of us would do everything in our power either to prevent others from noticing that or to keep it from happening, right? Moses is not that different from you and me. So for today, what we need to know is that Moses is a complicated figure and when the glory starts to fade, he decides to keep using the veil to disguise, to disguise this reality from the people of God. Paul uses this now. We're shifting to the problem section of our outline. The problem becomes when people follow Moses' example, not the first example of humility and modesty, but the second example of a veil, of a disguise, of choosing not to pay attention to something. There's no problem over here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain in the corner. There's nothing going on. Moses shifts the point of the veil. And it's actually right here in the text how much of a problem this becomes. Turn with me back to the Second Corinthians passage. Listen now to verse 14 and 15. Their minds were hardened indeed to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant. The same veil is there since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. Whenever Moses is read, whenever the Old Testament, whenever the Old Covenant is brought back up before the people of God, before the people in the church that Paul was writing to, In other words, you got window tint, and it's winter in western Washington. In other words, you got sunglasses on, and you're trying to drive at night. In other words, the veil has ceased to be useful according to its original purpose, and now it is a barrier and a burden to an encounter with the living God. It says here in the text, God's people hear the truth. They hear stories that they would have been reminded of about their history and their legacy, God's grace, God's love, his call to justice. But there is something blocking them, and that is the veil that each of us has to name. Now, someone might be saying, like, okay, just take the stupid veil off. Like, if that's really the issue, just get rid of it. Like, if you're too hot, take your jacket off, right? It's not that simple. Because the veil has an obscuring effect, and the text says this, not just on our eyes, but on our hearts and our minds. It's very easy when you wear glasses to clean your glasses. It's very easy when you drop your sunglasses and the lens cracks to get a new pair of sunglasses. That is in front of your eyes. I love the Spanish word for glasses, anteojos, in front of the eyes. It's not that simple. The text tells us that the obscuring effect hits the heart and the mind, which is a couple of levels down than your anteojos, than the things in front of your eyes. Here's what we need to know, church. It takes an outside objective force to break through a subjective reality. It takes an outside, stronger than you, stronger than me, 
objective force to reach into our subjective reality and pull off the veil. And the veil is just anything that blocks you and me from experiencing Jesus Christ's power and presence in our lives. And we do not have the power to uniquely remove that veil. These are the manifestations of our sin. This is the way sin fractured all of reality and the way it continues to play out in our lives is so myriad, it's so complicated, it's so hard to track down. I started to think just as I was studying the text this week, what are some of the ways that I experienced an obscuring, a way that in my life, in a particular moment this week, I could have turned to Jesus, I could have asked Jesus for help, and I didn't. Here are some of my greatest hits. And the list could be quite long. I do not see Jesus clearly when I am stressed or anxious. I start making lists. I kind of kick into high responsibility mode. And rather than holding those things out to God, I just try to get to work as fast as I possibly can. I don't see Jesus very clearly. I'm obscured. The veil falls in front of my eyes when money's really tight or when stuff breaks around my house and I'm unable to fix it, which is most things. I don't see Jesus clearly. There's a veil over my eyes when my values are affronted, when something I care deeply about is sort of impinged upon. Like one of my values is I do my best to honor people. If someone sends me a nasty email or I get some kind of thing, right, I'm trying to sell something on OfferUp and some guy calls me a nasty name because I couldn't get it to him in time. Sorry, it was free. That's an affront to my values. And in that moment, guess what? There's the veil. I'm back in the car. The windows are up. It's raining. It's winter in western Washington. Guess what you don't need? Limousine tent, but there it is. What is your veil, church? What are the veils that fall over your eyes in your daily life? What triggers you? What rolls the window up and puts the limo tent in place and you can't see? That's the problem. So we've discussed the Moglo, we've discussed history, we've talked about the problem we cannot solve, our inability to move the veil away from our hearts, our sin, our anxieties, but now we've identified the problem, so that's a pretty good step toward identifying a solution, right? The nice thing is the text already identified the solution for us in verse 16. So go back to the text with me. Verse 16 says this, But when one, when a person turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Say that with me, church. The veil is removed. Remember that whole, you need an external power to free you from a subjective reality? This is it. I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. We need an external power to free us from the veil. Now, when this is read, someone might be tempted to say like, okay, great, so I just, you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, right? Like smooth sailing after that, no problem. That is an oversimplification of the truth. The good news of the gospel is not you follow Jesus Christ and everything is smooth sailing after that. The good news of the gospel is that the suffering that we will encounter is useful for God's good. And the framework, the lens through which we get to encounter some suffering, at least in my exposure to the major religious traditions of the world, there's no other faith in the world that makes the claim that suffering can actually be good or that it can actually be used for good. We won't necessarily know it in the moment. We may not know it forever and ever until Jesus comes, why we endured some suffering, why someone we loved died, why we didn't get the job, why our marriage fell apart. We may not know, but only in Jesus Christ is the promise real and true that there is no more senseless suffering. 
That something will come of the things that we have faced. That in fact, Paul makes this argument in the letter. It is actually key to our transformation, to becoming more like Christ, to experience suffering. Power is made perfect in weakness. That's what we're talking about. Now, it is clear that suffering is going to happen. If you've lived any amount of time, you know this is true. But I need to make a critical connection for us before we're able to move on to some next steps. This is what makes the solution effectual. How is there teeth to this solution? Human beings can grow. We can pursue this trajectory toward becoming more like Christ. We can have the veil removed because Jesus Christ himself took on the veil. And the veil is sin. And the veil is what was on his shoulders as he was on the cross. There is no other outside force powerful enough to remove your veil and my veil than the one who took it all on on the cross. Only his shoulders could bear that weight. Only his person, only his perfect being could do that. There is no other pathway through the veil. You can't work around it. You can't come up with a different solution. Jesus didn't have to do this. He chose to do this. John 1, the word became flesh, and this is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, and moved into the neighborhood. Only a God who is willing to do that, only a God who is willing to go to a cross to lay the veil, lay the sin, lay the deception that all of us know so well and carry that all the way to completion. Only that could free us up to be a people who say, I care about growing. I don't want the veil anymore. I'm tired of it. I want something different. Paul wrote about this in such a beautiful way in another one of his letters, Philippians. If you want to turn there with me, it's just a couple pages to the right. Philippians chapter 2. This is like a great hymn almost. It's this beautiful poem. It starts in verse 5. Paul writes this, Let the same mind be in you, that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, he took on the veil, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Can you say that with me? He humbled himself. He didn't have to, but he did. And the result is we are free. We are free to grow. We're free to worship. We're free to grow. We're free to do all kinds of things. But for the purposes of today's sermon, we're going to finish our time together by talking about how this can look in real life. How do we do this together? I mentioned Dallas Willard earlier. I'm going to put one of his quotes up on the board, on the screen, and we're actually going to kind of walk through this and take some time to reflect on it. Willard was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California for a long time. He was a leading researcher in his field. He did incredible work in the field of philosophy, and he loved Jesus Christ. And he was one of those rare men that served so faithfully in the world of academia, pointing toward Jesus over and over again. So hear this quote. It'll be up on the screen behind me. Willard wrote, To grow or to experience spiritual formation, as he called it, in Christ, is the intentional process to shape a person's inner being to be like the inner being of Christ. And he gives these four attributes. God-connected, self-denying, joyful, and easily obedient. While spiritual formation is always dependent upon the leadership of the Spirit and the provision of God's grace, it is founded on intentional human efforts. 
that last phrase is really important. We're not talking about works righteousness. We're not talking about singing the right songs and praying the right prayers to achieve this outcome. It's not A plus B equals C. It is the application of grace and meeting God in his grace with intentional effort. When we dedicate babies here at this church, one of the promises we make together is that we will so order our congregational and individual witness to point toward the reality of Jesus Christ for that child. That's what we're talking about. We meet God in his grace and we carry out an intentional way of living to demonstrate that his grace has changed us, not just for our kids, for anyone. So I'm going to say a little bit about each of these four components and I'm actually going to give us just some time to think about it. And I hope you'll know this. Each of these components is reflected in the scripture and every one of us is going to fall super short on this. These are just ways for us, I think, to kind of order our minds so that we're going like, okay, where do I even start? Like, I want to grow, but I don't even know where to begin. Start here. First part is God connected. Can you say that with me? God connected. Consider, and for all of these, just consider the last two or three months of your life, right? So go back to summer. It's, it's hot. It's 80. The sun's out. That glowy thing in the sky, the smell of sunscreen, going to a baseball game. Consider the last two to three months. How are you doing in your connection to God? And by that I mean, are you meeting regularly with him? It's like asking, how are you in your connections with your friends, with your spouse, with your neighbors? Are you meeting regularly with them? And with God, this is so wonderful. We can meet him in our devotions, in journaling. We can do prayer walks. We can dwell in the scriptures. So are you dwelling with God, church? How's the last couple months been for you? Just, if you want to jot down a few thoughts, go ahead and do that. God connected. The second part is self-denying. The way that I would define this is actively choosing God's will. Experiencing this, this crazy thing. I, I think I'm getting kind of whiffs of it in my life where God's will is actually more desirable at times than the thing that I really want in that moment. And that requires that we kind of have some clarity about what God's will, and we may be wrong about that, but like what I want is increasingly, it doesn't smell as good. You know what I mean? Like there's something more desirable beyond just what I feel like I need in the moment. Self-denial. Actively choosing God's will. This means if you're not feeling up for it, you still go to small group. This means if you're not feeling 100% like reading the scriptures, just sit with it. It may not hit you that moment. It may not hit you later in the morning, but you did it. This is not checking the box. This is not religiosity. This is showing up and expecting that God will do his amazing work through what little pittance of work I can show up and do in that moment. That's self-denial. How are you doing with that? When's the last time you listened to one of those little nudges, those little bumps from the Lord to move towards something, to move away from something? How are you doing with that? The next one is joyful. This one, if you talk about joyful without a smile on your face, like, <laughs> I'm worried about you. <laughs> when did you last experience a deep sense of God's joy? Of, of his overwhelming goodness, of some gift, some moment, something that you're a part of where you just, these are such great moments, church, and we need them so much, especially in our stressed out, overscheduled day. I'm so grateful to be a part of this. I'm so grateful for the people at my dinner table. I'm so grateful that the work that I do makes me come alive. 
It could be something as simple and as intentionally joyful as what my family and I did on Friday, which is go to the Puyallup Fair. It's one of my favorite places. Jill and I went on one of our first dates there, and now we get to bring our kids there. It's pretty awesome. It's a place of joy. When was the last time you experienced joy? How could you order your week to encounter the joy of the living God? Consider that for just a moment. Finally, this last one is probably the hardest one. Easily obedient. Jesus demonstrated this over and over again. I do not have a will of my own. I do the will of the Father. When did you feel a nudge from the, from the God of the universe and you just did it? You just said, okay, God, this is nuts, but I'm just going to do it. Or maybe it wasn't so nuts, right? One thing that I wanted to share just in regard to my own journey with this, I've shared with you guys before, it's actually kind of hard for me. I get pretty insecure just inviting people to church, inviting people into something that we're doing ministry-wise. Like, I just, I struggle with that. I have a fear of rejection, I think. I have tried increasingly to listen to when God is nudging me to extend an invitation to someone to be gracious to myself when it's met sometimes with a negative response. And I will say this too, it gets easier over time to live into that easy obedience. It does. You start to, it's like, you know, a wagon wheel. You start to kind of see the rut and you go, okay, yeah, this, this is good. I want to keep trying this. I may be getting better at it. Who knows? But I'm trying it. That's an easy obedience. What is something that God may be nudging you to do as an act of just easy obedience? So church, are you tired of the veil? Are you sick of looking out your window and it's raining and it's wintertime and you can't see anything? Are you stuck somewhere where you feel like, I, I would love to be able to make a move, but I don't even know where to go. I don't, I don't have a clear sense of that. Let me give us just a final encouragement. Just using the last phrase of the text, the last verse of the text. If you want to be able to aim at something, maybe this is your memory verse for the week ahead. Maybe you write it down. But think of this as what God so deeply desires for you that his heart already leaps for joy over you, but maybe it leaps just a little bit more fully and passionately when people live like this. Verse 18, And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being, what church? We're being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. That's that inward being in you becomes more like the inward being of Jesus. You are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, not from your own effort. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Church, I'm going to invite the band to come back up to the stage, and as we do so, we're going to have an opportunity to reflect on this idea of of glory to glory, of being transformed. Come on up, guys. And we don't do this a lot, but it felt very appropriate today to do this. Megan and I talked about this as a way to use uh, some of the art that she's been a part of. She's written this song, and we're just going to have a chance to reflect. So that space I told you to keep at the end of your notes, you can just write a little bit more in there if that's helpful to you. I just want to invite you to remain seated. We'll reflect on these words. And then we'll rise and join our voices together at the end for the chorus. So please remain seated and please join me in prayer.
Jesus, we thank you for the high calling that you've given to us. Not a single person in this room, myself included, is up for this task at all. It is beyond our ability to imagine, to conceive, wow, you, you really want me to become more like your son. You, you really want my inner being, those really yucky parts of me, to stop being yucky and to become like the one who went to the cross for me. It, it, it feels impossible, and it is. But as you promised us, as your son spoke these words, and they can become a reality, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, Father, help each of us, each person in this room, hear these words, reflect, and then when we stand in just a moment, may we stand at attention in the presence of the King to do what you desire, to be a part of the building of your kingdom, beginning in the deepest parts of each of our beings. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.